That song that we just sang together as a community, those prayers that we just prayed corporately and in our own hearts, that's been our prayer throughout this whole Bible study series, that we would come to a place of grappling with what Scripture is so that the Word of God can speak and pour down on us and wash us so we can see the majesty, the beauty of who God reveals himself to be through Jesus Christ in the pages of the Bible. That's the whole goal of this series. We've been doing it by kind of re-asking ourselves some hard questions about what kind of book this Bible really is. Um, you see, because we're, we're part of an evangelical tradition, and I grew up as a part of this tradition, where our belief about the Bible is that this is a divine book, that it finds its origin in the spirit, deep in the spirit of God, and that, and that God has breathed this book out. It is kind of an act of spiritual CPR, where by the spirit of God, God breathes through the pages of scripture, and spiritually dead beings like us bring to life because of what's contained in this book, what comes from God, so that we can uh, become everything that God's created us to do and, and do everything that God has created for us to do in, in our lives. And we believe that, that scripture is God's book, a divine book, 100%. Now, what the evangelical community has always assumed or philosophically supposed that that means is that since God always tells the truth and he knows everything and he never makes mistakes, then everything in the pages of scripture must be factually accurate in every way. That's been the assumption that I've lived with and that the evangelical movement in general has lived with. Um, except in the last couple of years, I've begun to grapple with that assumption because it seems to me, for example, when it comes to issues and matters of science, the Bible doesn't seem to be scientifically accurate by 21st century standards in everything that it affirms. It does, in that sense, to misspeak about science. And so last week we talked all about what to do with that. And, and the proposal that I've been working with the last couple of weeks doesn't come from me. It comes from the early centuries of church history revived recently by a scholar named Pete Entz. Uh, who has written about this, that our proposal is that perhaps the Bible ought to be thought about not just as a divine book, 100% divine, which it is, but also like Jesus as a human book, 100% human. So that God, yes, breathes out the scriptures that finds its source and origin in him, but he breathes it through ancient people who have ancient understandings and ancient perspectives, who live with ancient assumptions and who believe in ancient science. And so when you go to the pages of scripture and find ancient science instead of modern science reflected there, it's no trouble because the scriptures, while having come from God, is breathed through ancient people. And at the surface level, perhaps there are scientific inaccuracies, but beneath that, at the core level of essential truth of what God is saying theologically, uh, the truthfulness of scripture is still present. That God is able to speak even through ancient people with ancient perspectives. And if God's able to speak through modern people with modern perspectives, then certainly that ought to be the case. And so last week we explored the issue of scientific inaccuracy and the challenge that that has posed for our conception of scripture. This morning we're looking at a different uh, challenge that gets posed 
to our view of the scriptures, which is the, the challenge of historical accuracy. See, if the assumption is that scripture is God's book 100%, that means that since God knows everything and never lies and never makes mistakes, that everything in the scripture is historically accurate down to the minutest detail, then that poses a challenge for how we read the scriptures. Because the truth of the matter is the scriptures do not appear, at least to me, to be scientific or historically accurate in every detail of what they report. I think this challenge comes in two forms. There is a challenge to the scriptures of internal inconsistency. I'll show you what I mean. Sometimes the scriptures disagree with itself about what actually happened in history. I'll read you a story out of Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. It's a bit of a weird story, but we'll, we'll read it anyway. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Almost every time I rehearsed my sermon, I wanted to say those selling drugs. But it's not, it's doves. I skip down to verse 17. It says, and he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. That's the story that Matthew tells. So I, I want you to make sure you're clear on the chronology of the story the way Matthew tells it. Jesus goes into the temple and he gets angry because some people have turned the temple into a market bazaar and they're exchanging currency and they're selling animals for the sacrificial system and Jesus is angry at it all and he turns over the tables and he drives out those who are selling animals and whatever, he cleanses the temple. It is what the story's been called. And after cleansing the temple, Jesus leaves the city and spends the night in a town called Bethany. The next morning, Jesus is traveling back from Bethany to Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree. He wants a fig. There are no figs on the tree. And so he curses the tree and it withers immediately. So this is the story. Cleanse the temple, night in Bethany, curse the fig tree, withers immediately. What's interesting about this story, and there are other examples that we could have turned to, but what's interesting about this story is that Mark also tells the story in the gospel according to Mark. And it sounds different. He says in verse 12, the next day as they were see, leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find out if he had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it, and nothing happened. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. When evening came, verse 19, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots and Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Matthew and Mark tell the same story. Matthew's story, cleanse a temple, night in Bethany, curse the fig tree, withers. Mark's story, curse the fig tree, no withering, cleanse the temple, night in Bethany, fig tree withered. There have been a lot of people who have tried to figure out 
how to construct a chronology of events, what really happened in real time, so that if you were to have had a video camera, right, at the original events, and you watched exactly what happened, and then you read what Matthew wrote, you would say, that is exactly what happened, 100% accurate. And then if you read what Mark wrote, even though it's different than Matthew, you'd say, that is exactly what happened, that's 100% accurate. And I gotta tell you, I am not convinced by those attempts to harmonize what are very clearly two irreconcilable versions of the same story. It cannot have happened in both of these ways. Temple, Bethany, curse, wither. Curse, temple, Bethany, wither. They're just different tellings of the same story. And this happens over and over again in the pages of scripture. In fact, not just in the New Testament with the gospels, but in the Old Testament as well. Um, there are two tellings of the story of the, mo- the rise and fall of the monarchy in Israel. Kind of Israel's history from about 1000 BCE to about 586 BCE. Two different stories. One is found in 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. That's all one story. And the other is found in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Same period of history covered. And if you were to read those two side by side and back to back as some of us have done, you would notice two things. Number one, they are telling exactly the same story. This is the story of the rise and the fall of the Jewish monarchy between these same dates. They're telling the same period of history and they're essentially telling the same story. But the second thing you would notice is that they are telling very different stories. The story is the same. The stories are what's different. And in some cases, so different that it begins to make you wonder how these two authors think they could be talking about the same people. The question is, what do you do with that? The internal inconsistency. Many people have noticed and pointed out the inconsistencies of scriptures and many biblical scholars with an evangelical type mindset have worked really, really hard to try and demonstrate that those inconsistencies can be harmonized. But I just think there might be a better way to think about how to deal with those situations. The second challenge to historical accuracy in the scriptures is the challenge It's an external consistency challenge and it has to do with the ways in which the biblical narrative and the findings of archaeology don't always align. Now I instantly want to qualify this in a whole bunch of ways. And the first way is this, to say this, that in many, 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 many ways, the vast majority of ways, 95% of the ways, I'm making up a number, but the vast majority of ways archaeology confirms what we find in the pages of scripture both in the details about specific individuals and stories, especially starting with the Jewish monarchy and all the way through the life of Jesus and the church, and also in the general confirmation of the kind of culture that is being described. So it's stories about Abraham where we don't have specific evidence of the existence of Abraham. What is conceded is that the stories describe the culture the way it was actually in the days when Abraham would have been alive, that these are no, nobody seriously doubts the overall hera- uh, historical veracity of the scriptures. The other thing I'd want to say is that archaeology isn't the be-all and end-all. It's not uh, foolproof. It's not always definitive. Um, archaeologists themselves are as much artists as they are scientists. Many sciences work that way. We just don't talk about it much, but science is usually as much art as it is science, as much intuition and subjectivity as it is facts and objectivity. 
And these archaeologists um, find incomplete data and they have their own limited perspectives and their own subjective viewpoints and their own biases and their own acts to grind. And so it requires interpretation and that interpretation is always tainted by subjectivity, which is why you expose it to peer review. And the peers don't always reach consensus on how to interpret the data. It is a very uh, interpretive science. And so the trustings of archaeology are, are never going to be the final arbiter of the truthfulness of what's in Scripture. I know that. And to be honest, maybe tomorrow the next archaeological discovery takes place and it just clears up all of what we used to think was mystery. That People used to say, you know, the person of King David was a fiction because we've never found evidence of King David in history. And now there are two archaeological pieces of data from the uh, 9th century BCE that verify the existence of the house of David of Israel. Um, so I know all of that is true. But what is also true is that the evangelical church hasn't always had a very honest relationship with archaeology. We love archaeology every time it confirms the truthfulness of something we find in the pages of Scripture. Right? You discover a, a reference to King David and you say, see, King David existed, the Bible is true, and we put it in, <clears throat> excuse me, we put it in the footnotes of our study Bible. And we celebrate the triumph of biblical truthfulness. But every time archaeology maybe points away from the truthfulness of something in Scripture, we say, ah, archaeology is subjective, and tomorrow we'll find something that proves that we're right and they're wrong. And we kind of dismiss it off to the side, and I don't really feel like that's very fair. That when the Bible, or when archaeology says what we want it to say, we triumph it and say it's yay for archaeology. But when it disagrees with Scripture, we say, oh, well, they're stupid and because the truth of the matter is archaeology doesn't always agree with the pages of Scripture. Consider the story of the conquest of Canaan reported in the book of Joshua. The story of how Israel invaded and violently conquered the land of Palestine and annexed it from its previous in, uh, inhabitants, slaughtering many of them, chasing some of them away and enslaving the rest. The book of Joshua talks about 35 towns that were subjected to the Israelite invasion. 16 of those towns were violently destroyed, the Bible says, and 12 of them were surrendered without a conflict at all, just absolute surrender to Israel. The challenge is that archaeology has also been exploring these towns. And what archaeology has discovered is that of those 16 towns that were violently destroyed, the best archaeological evidence we have to date suggests that only a quarter of those towns show any signs of violent destruction during the period that we're talking about. Some of them were probably not even inhabited. Of the 12 towns that were surrendered absolutely, about seven of them, our archaeological evidence suggests, but seven of them were not inhabited in the first place, and three of them do show signs of violent conflict. But the violent conflict that has been uncovered is more often than not, not the violent conflict of foreign invaders, but the violent conflict of tribal infighting. It just, it sits in tension with the biblical narrative. Take the most popular example, most popular story out of the book of Joshua, the first town, the town of Jericho. Where the Bible says that the Israelite army marched around the city of Jericho seven times, blew a trumpet, the walls fell down, they stormed the city and killed every man, woman, and child. 
our best archaeological data, and they've been digging on this, our best archaeological data says that at the time, Jericho was minimally inhabited and did not possess defensive walls. What do you do with that? My proposal is that you consider the Bible to be not just a divine book, though it is, 100% finds its source and origin God, but also a human book. That God breathed his revelation through ancient people who lived with ancient perspectives and had ancient understandings and wrote for ancient purposes. See, the difference that makes is this. Ancient history is different. Writing ancient history is different than writing modern history. So they had different sensibilities about what it meant to write history than we do. We have this, this notion, this very modern notion that the, what true historical writing means almost making a documentary, right? You, we want chronologically accurate, objective reporting of just the facts of exactly what happened so that we can be informed about what happened in history. That's kind of the modern conception of what it means to write history well. The problem is that um, no history book has ever been written like that. Every person who's ever written history has been subjective instead of objective. They've been a person with a limited perspective and limited amounts of data and with their own personal experiences and their own educational background and their own personal biases that shape the way they interact with the data who have written history for the purpose of promoting a thesis of how they personally understand the significance of the events that are being reported. That's how writing history works. Um, And that's how the ancient writers were very open and very comfortable about writing history. Yes, they wanted to tell the story about something that truly did happen in history. But they felt this incredible freedom to kind of move the details around, to be creative in the way that they told the story because their primary purpose was not the conveying of facts for the purpose of information. Their primary purpose in writing was to create faith in order to create transformation in the people who heard. Ancient history writers did not consider themselves to be making a documentary providing objective data about the facts of what really happened. What they were doing was much more like writing the screenplay for a movie based on real events. Where they are describing a historical period, you know, accurately or truthfully but they're presenting it creatively and moving things around and sometimes inventing dialogue and creating characters and and doing whatever they needed to do to shape the story for maximum impact because the reason they were writing was to transform their audience, not to inform them about the facts of history. And truth be told, what they were doing was much less like reporting the news and much more like giving a sermon illustration. Right, like, think about this. When I tell you stories about my family, those are true stories. Those things, believe it or not, really do happen to my family. And yet the way I tell you the stories are carefully crafted pieces of art, if I do say so myself. 
I'm crafting these stories for maximum impact, which means I'm shifting some details around. I'm emphasizing certain parts and leaving out certain parts. I sometimes create dialogue in order to bring the heart of what is happening out into the open. And I exaggerate or augment certain parts of the story in order to... um, not just communicate the information about what happened, but to help you emotionally identify so that you get the point of what I'm trying to say. That's how you tell history too. If I were to ask you, what did you do yesterday? You wouldn't say, well, first I woke up and then I had cornflakes and, and walk me chronologically through an objective telling of just the facts about your day. You wouldn't give me a documentary of your day. You'd start with a statement like, my day was the worst, which is your subjective thesis. And then you would tell me the story of your day, shaping it in such a way to arouse sympathy in me so that I might be compelled to care about you. That's how history gets told. And that's how ancient historians did it. Of course, the question is then, how do you know what really happened? How do you know it's real? And to that, I'd say a couple of things. Number one, they're writing history. They're not writing novels. They are, they're telling you the truth about something that happened. You can see the same story in Mark and Matthew and determine that Jesus stayed in Bethany, went to the temple, cleansed it, cursed a fig tree, and it withered. Like, those things are there. You have to think about the gospel writers, for example, like four witnesses of a car accident, each who are standing on a different corner of the intersection who watched the accident happen and then the police show up and they all interview him and say what happened all four witnesses are going to tell a different version of the story because they saw different things and of what they saw they noticed different things and of what they noticed they were impacted they were struck by different different things had different amounts of significance and so in the story they tell they're going to focus their story on what was significant and what they noticed because it had impact and meaning for them, they're going to remember different things. These are going to be four different stories that are recognizably about the same event. You can tell what happened through the four different stories, right? That's the job of the jury in the trial, is to listen to the four different stories and get past the surface truths about the details of what happened and get to the essential truth about the, the nature of the event. Because they disagree, that doesn't mean that nothing happened. Or you can't know what happened. It means that something significant happened. And it takes some work to figure out what it was that happened. But that's what these stories are. They are individually shaped stories. Because the biblical writer had a purpose. They had an audience they were trying to reach in order to move them in a particular way. Think about, uh, let's, let's go back to the naming of the most recent pope. Pope Francis, and you're struck by this event of global significance. And so you say, I want to understand everything I can about this event. So you go home and you watch the news. You watch a half hour of CNN, a half hour of BBC, a half hour of Fox News, and a half hour of Jon Stewart. Can't watch Jon Stewart anymore. So sad. What you would discover watching those four newscasts is that they are all talking about the same event, and you can figure out what really happened but they're talking about it in very different ways. Why? 
because they have very different audiences with very different political sensibilities, who have very different needs and very different questions and very different doubts and very different fears and who need to hear the story told in very different ways in order to know how they personally ought to respond. That's what the gospel writers are doing. Matthew's writing his story of Jesus not as an objective history to nobody. Matthew's writing to a community of Jewish Christians who are struggling to understand how the Jesus event fits into their very Jewish understanding of who God is and what he's doing in the world. Mark is not writing to those people. He's writing to a small and beleaguered community of persecuted Christians in Rome who need encouragement and who need to be encouraged to persevere, to suffer as Jesus did for the sake of the gospel. Luke is writing to a community of new converts and he just needs to verify that they've been instructed adequately as to the significance of who Jesus was and what he taught. And John is writing to a community of Jewish and Gentile unbelievers in order to convince them to put their faith in Jesus. Four very different communities with four different needs, asking four different questions, four different fears, out of which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are trying to invoke four different responses. And so they tell their stories differently. That's why they're called the gospel according to Matthew. This is how Matthew sees the gospel. Same is true of Samuel Kings and Chronicles. The book of Samuel and Kings is written to a community of discouraged exiles in slavery in Babylon, wondering why God abandoned them. The book of Chronicles is written to a small community of Jews who had returned from exile to their promised land, which is in desolation, wondering whether there is a hope and a future for them, wondering what it means to reconnect with God and whether God will ever bless them again. Two different communities who need two different versions of the story in order to meet the two different kinds of needs that they have. And so in writing to those communities to meet those needs, the writers of the scripture felt free to adapt the stories in any way that they saw fit, even if it meant fudging with the details a little bit. It's an interesting example in 2 Kings chapter 3. A story about Misha, the king of Moab. In verse 4 it says this, Now Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of 100,000 lambs and wool of 100,000 rams. But after King Ahab of Israel died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So what happens is the new king of Israel contacts his neighbors, the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they put together a little coalition of the willing who together go and attack Moab to try and beat them into submission again. And when it looks like with those three kings, when it looks like all is lost, the Bible says the God of Israel, Yahweh, intervenes and he does this miraculous thing that tricks the Moabites to wander into the Jewish camp. And it says in verse 24, when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. And they stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. The king of Moab gets desperate and he sacrifices his son, which rallies the troops and they fight back and they push Israel out of the land. The story is it's told in the Bible. Now, interestingly enough, there is an identical, or there's another version of the same event that we found from outside the Bible, written in what's been called the Misha inscription, 
which is a stone on which the story is told, written by King Misha of Moab, written by, from the perspective of the enemy. And it's told very differently. Here's how Misha tells it. This is the heading. He says, Omri, the king of Israel, humbled Moab for many years. For Chemosh, the god of Moab, was angry with his land. And his son, Omri's son, reigned in his place. And he also said, I will oppress Moab. In my days, he said so. But I triumphed over him and over his house, and Israel has perished. It has perished forever. <laughs> you know, which is a very ironic thing for the king of Moab to say, considering that Moab doesn't exist and Israel does. Right? Two very different tellings of the same story in history, each one insisting that their God intervene. Misha goes on to talk about the hundreds of towns he captured, the thousands of people he slaughtered, the ways he destroyed or desecrated the temple of Israel, whatever. They are very, very different stories about who won this battle. Kind of like if you were to read the plaques on the Queenston side and the New York side of Queenston Heights. Very different stories about the Battle of 1812. The point is, what do you do in that scenario where the Bible and archaeology don't agree? The easy answer the evangelical community has always gone to is easy. The Bible's right and Misha's wrong. The Bible's inspired, Misha isn't. Maybe that's true. In my mind, though, it's more likely that what has happened is that both of the authors of the stories have shaped their stories not to accurately portray the facts of the events so much as to call the audiences to which they're writing to faith, to teach them a, a message, which ironically is the same message in both cases. We are great because God is with us. The stories are not meant to chronicle history as much as they are to inspire faith. I personally think that that's probably what happens with the conquest narratives. Pentecostal theologian named Chris Green has said, we've wasted too much time trying to read beyond or behind the stories of the Bible to figure out exactly what happened. And it's time for us to start focusing our attention on the stories of the Bible that God has given us and ask us the question, not exactly what happened, but to ask ourselves the question, why exactly did God want us to wrestle with this story exactly the way it sits? Because these are the stories that God gave us. It's time for us to stop focusing on the surface small t truths of historical accuracy and start focusing on the essential capital T truth of what it is that God is trying to teach us. And what Chris Green suggests is that we ought to think about the stories of the Bible in exactly the same way that we think about the stories that Jesus told See, Jesus is the God who reveals the Bible to us. And so if Jesus is the God who reveals the scripture, then the way Jesus tells story when he walks among us in the New Testament is probably pretty similar to the way Jesus tells stories when he was revealing the scripture of the Old Testament and other places. And the stories that Jesus tells in the New Testament are sometimes fictional. They're just made up in order to to prove a point about what God is like, about what we're like, what the kingdom is like, or whatever. We're going to study the stories of Jesus this fall. Sometimes the stories Jesus tells are folk stories that people know that Jesus has adapted in order to give it a fresh punch and a new lesson that will penetrate the hearts of his listeners. Sometimes the stories Jesus tells are, are rooted in real historical events, and around those events he has woven a story in which God is revealing 
something true. Sometimes the stories that Jesus tells are about just real historical events that happened. And Chris Green suggests that we ought to think about the stories of the Old Testament in exactly the same way because the same Jesus is telling the stories in both instances. And so maybe some of the stories in the Old Testament actually belong more under the category of fiction. It just didn't happen this way. The story was invented to create a theological point. And I personally, as we talked about last week, would put the creation narrative maybe in that bin. Maybe a a book like Job belongs in that bin. Um, Some of the stories were folk stories that were familiar to people but that were adapted by God to have a particular fresh telling and a new message. Right? I might put the story of Noah and the flood in that bin. Every culture had a story of the flood. And all those stories were basically the same. But it was the biblical story that God says, this is the one that can change your life. Maybe the book of Jonah belongs in that bin. Some stories are rooted in history. There, there's a a kernel of historical truth. These things actually happen, but the story has been presented in a way to focus on the theological truth instead of the historical accuracy of the events. I would put the conquest narratives maybe in that bin, or maybe that's where the book of Jonah belongs. Or, and some stories are just factually, this is actually what happened, and maybe the book of Jonah belongs there. Maybe the conquest belongs there. It's obviously there are hard questions to wrestle through. I'll tell you one story that definitely belongs there is the story of the resurrection. Because Paul says if the resurrection didn't really happen in time and space, then we're screwed. Then the Christian faith is false. Now, spoiler alert, he never says that about the creation story. He never says that about the exodus. He never says that about the conquest. He never says that about Jonah. He never says that about any other story. Just the death and resurrection of Jesus, which assumes the whole Jesus story. He says if Jesus isn't true and historically accurate, we're screwed. It's something we confess by faith because we have no evidence, really. We have evidence. We have no proof. Um, And I confess by faith that I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that happened in history. And one of the reasons I believe it is because Paul, to his audience, said, if you don't believe me, go ask any of the 500 people who also saw the resurrected Jesus and they'll tell you all about it. There was proof in Paul's day, even though we don't have access to it, and that gives me the confidence of faith. But my point is, and Chris Green's point is, we should be willing to read the stories as the same kinds of stories that Jesus told when Jesus was on earth because these are all stories that Jesus is telling us and wants us to respond in faith. And so the response, how do we read these stories? Really quickly, four suggestions. Number one, and they all fall under the banner of holistically. Number one, we have to read the whole Bible. Not just the parts that make us comfortable, not just the parts we're familiar with, not just the parts that make sense to us, that fit our theological framework, not just the parts that add proof to our certain perspective of things. The whole thing is the story that God is telling, and we need to read the whole thing. Number two, the whole Bible in the whole community. Evangelicals have always said that an individual can sit by themselves with the scriptures, read it in their own language, and understand the plain truth of what God is teaching. And I say yes. Kind of. The more people you include in the conversation about what God is teaching, the more deeply you will understand what God is saying. 
So read it in community with your friends. Read it in community with our church. Read it in community with our denomination. Read it in community with the church around the globe and throughout history. Read it in community with scholarship and books and commentaries. Invite as many voices as you can into the conversation because the Proverbs say, plans fail for lack of advice, but with many counselors they succeed. The more voices you include, the better off you are, the better perspective you're going to have. Thirdly, whole Bible in the whole community, read it with your whole self. Don't just read it with, you're not a brain on a stick. Don't just read the Bible for knowledge, for information about what happened. Read the Bible with your heart as well. To have your heart broken open and so that God can address what's going on inside of you. See, one of the great tragedies of our readings of scripture is that we can read the conquest narratives and the genocidal stories that happened there and the way the Bible says that God commanded all of that, which we're going to talk about next week. And not only is our morality not offended by that, we actually defend the genocidal nature of the stories and the genocidal God who commanded it. To my mind, that exposes a defect in our character much more than it does a defect in the text. Whole Bible, whole community, whole self to be made whole. Once your heart is broken open and that defect is exposed, you can confront it and repent of it and the scriptures can begin to teach and rebuke and correct and train you so that you can be everything that God's created you to be and do everything God's created you to do because that, not historical accuracy, That is why God has revealed this scripture to us. Maybe it's time for us to begin to look past the surfaced truths of historical accuracy, the stories in scripture, and open our heart to the story of what God is doing in the world and in us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you as those who need the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We need your Spirit to open our minds and our hearts so we can understand your word, what you are communicating to us so that you can break us open and to begin to transform us so we can stop being obsessed with the shallow truths of historical accuracy and instead allow ourselves to be possessed by the deep truth of the story of your son, Jesus, who came to set us free. We pray in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.